I gotta say, I'm just really thrilled to be uh, with you this evening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have some really great thinkers and great speakers this evening as panelists. And uh, in a minute, I have the great honor to introduce them. Uh, I wanted to give you a sense of uh, how this whole series, Things That Matter, came about. I'm really increasing in my concern for uh, our community and our country. And although leaders are rightfully focused on the pandemic, sometimes you just get the impression that there's nothing beyond, uh, that they're not looking beyond that horizon. What about other health concerns? What about economic rebuilding? Uh, what about national security? So those are some of the things that we're gonna be highlighting in this series called Things That Matter, uh, starting with this inaugural episode this evening. So as, I, as Stephanie mentioned, and uh, uh, she's uh, my campaign manager doing a great job. We've got a super team of people. Uh, as she mentioned, um, well, I've, uh, we're, we're getting this uh, series launched tonight. And as we go, I, I have three commitments. Firstly, I wanna get us thinking about being nimble, nimble as a community, nimble as a country, because although we tend to focus on the crisis in front of us, we are in an age of uncertainty and we need to make sure that we are uh, able to move deftly to tackle the other crises that we don't predict. So um, how do we uh, make sure that our governments are able to perceive the needs of our community, identify solutions, create effective teams and make government accountable for its actions? So uh, I heard the term this morning that we have to live split screen. We have to live in the pandemic and deal with it, but look beyond and develop ways to cope with this age of uncertainty. So the first concern I have, and one of the things that motivated me to run again is the sense that our leaders uh, need to improve in our nimbleness. Secondly, we need to listen really well. And that's one of the themes of this series you're gonna get a chance later on to offer your questions and observations in the chat line. And I hope that what Darren and Silky have to bring us will provoke some really good thinking and will give me a chance to pick up some great ideas uh, to take onward if I have the honor to serve you in parliament again. And thirdly, and I found this to be absolutely essential when I served uh, seven years in the House of Commons, that it's not a solo sport. It's a team building exercise. We, we have to build great teams. And so by bringing together some of the country's top experts in the areas that we'll be looking at in this series, like Darren and Silky, I'm hoping they will continue to breathe advice and guidance uh, if I go on to serve in parliament. So the upcoming topics, uh, which are on the website, the website is johnwestonforimp.ca our bolster national security, enhance our environment, manage our foreign affairs, rebuild our economy and pursue equality and excellence. And tonight, uh, the speakers are setting a pretty high bar for the kind of uh, conversation that we're going to see unfold. Um, they will not only give you and your friends an insight into the, the topics of the day, but also form the core of some great people who will, I hope, criticize, uh, work together, 
disagree agreeably and move us towards some really good solutions for some of the things that uh, we have to confront. So let's move to our focus tonight, which is on health and wellness and fitness. Uh, some pretty bleak statistics to start. 90% of our children are not active enough. 70% of them, and probably um, more than this, are on screens more than two hours a day. That statistic came before the pandemic. It's probably tripled since. Um, adult uh, Canadians are less active than our children. One in three Canadian children is overweight or obese, which means that they have 14 times the likelihood of a cardiac event by age 50. Diabetes continues to increase at alarming rates and mental illness, as we all know, is on the rise. Productivity at work and effectiveness at school are compromised by these statistics. And it's not just about personal health and fitness. Uh, one uh, prominent conservative said to me recently, John, you are all about health and fitness and you're forgetting the economy. Well, you really cannot separate those things. The economic uh, costs of what I call sickness care, that is dealing with the results of physical inactivity are estimated at over $7 billion a year. And this number is from the government of Canada and goes back two or three years. I would suggest that that number has probably increased in dealing with the costs of, of uh, inactivity. So we've also found at the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute that there's great economic opportunities in investing in outdoor recreation and tourism and physical activity. Listen to these numbers. Um, this is evidence extrapolated from American sources, but it suggests that the outdoor recreation industry in Canada may represent between 1.2 and 10% of our national GDP, between 1.2 and 10%. So you're looking at between 84 and $170 billion annually in, in pure economic opportunities relating to outdoor recreation. And then if you take the broader sport recreation and fitness industry, there's even more revenue than that. So clearly we're looking not only at physical, mental and spiritual health of Canadians, but also at our economy. So my work in this area, and it's hard to call it work because I'm so passionate about it, but it goes back to, um, uh, well, when I was an MP, uh, I got to represent the area where we had over 70% of the venues for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And uh, during that time, it became clear that the lifestyle of our national leaders, those who served in parliament, was really a poor lifestyle. And so I got going this parliamentary fitness initiative, which is alive to this day, where MPs of various parties walk and run together and swim together at the Chateau Laurier. And I was known to wear this bike pin uh, in Parliament. And in fact, uh, two of my friends, Elizabeth May and Catherine McKenna um, of the Green and Liberal parties, respectively, they were so fed up in seeing my plastic bike pin that they awarded me this silver one. I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but this is a nice tailor-made silver bike pin to replace the plastic one. We created National Health and Fitness Day, which is the first Saturday in June. And that's a day when we try and get local governments to encourage their citizens to be more active. And uh, through the good efforts of my friend, Nancy Green Rain, uh, we got a bill passed 
she and I called National Health and Fitness Day Act in 2014. And so that day is now formalized in our uh, Canadian um, uh, uh, customs and traditions. And we have some 500 cities that have proclaimed the day. So it's a growing movement. And now I'm really uh, excited to be involved with uh, Darren and Silky, our panelists tonight, and some 30 others who are volunteer advisors at the charitable foundation that we created called the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute. And our goal is nothing less than making Canada the fittest nation on earth by 2030. So now um, I'm gonna introduce Silky in a minute after Darren speaks, but I wanna focus uh, uh, on Darren. So Darren is a, a remarkable human being who combines, in my experience, of esteemed background in academe with a real passion for people and making them healthier and fitter. Uh, I know him as well as a, as a great dad because I hear a lot about his son's hockey exploits and, and a great husband. But let me go through uh, some of his official positions because it will give you some sense of the kind of following he has and why one of his articles is uh, perhaps the most quoted in Canada in terms of academic research on physical activity. He's a professor and the co-director of the Physical Activity Promotion and Chronic Disease Prevention Unit at UBC. And he's the inaugural scholar of Indigenous Studies in the Kinesiology Program and the founder of the Cardiovascular Physiology and Rehabilitation Laboratory and the Indigenous Physical Activity and Health Program at UBC. He was also the director of sport cardiology and musculoskeletal assessment research team for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And I believe that's where he got to be friends with Jack Taunton, who's a real inspiration for many of us. So Darren, thank you for uh, coming to this panel this evening for all you do in the world of um, uh, health and fitness. And we look forward to your remarks. Well, thank you so much, John. I'm really honored to be here today on the Things That Matter. And I'll just share with everyone my slides. So bear with me a little bit here as we move forward. Please let me know if you're having any difficulty uh, seeing the slides. So today, I'm really honored to give a presentation on physical activity and the importance of taking a strength-based approach in health promotion. And to start in a good way, I'd like to acknowledge that we are situated on, and I'm giving this lecture as a non-invited guest on the traditional un ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. And I'm indebted to the Musqueam people for the contributions to our ongoing research. Today, we're gonna talk about chronic disease prevention. And I'll begin my presentation with a brief summary of the overwhelming evidence supporting the health benefits of physical activity. The paper that, that John talked about was one of our most influential papers. And you can see by the citations, close to 9,000 citations over the last 15 years. And in 2006, we were commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association Journal to examine the evidence related to the health benefits of regular physical activity participation. Through this work, we made a very bold statement at that time that there was irrefutable evidence that regular physical activity is an effective primary and secondary preventative strategy for at least 25 chronic medical conditions, such as heart disease, depression, cancer, diabetes, and of course, premature mortality. Since that time, we were asked in 2010 to examine the evidence supporting Canada's physical activity guidelines for adults. This include reviewing a large body of evidence involving millions of participants 
And through this, we revealed marked risk reductions as shown here for premature mortality and various chronic medical conditions with regular physical activity. It didn't matter what type of study, whether it was a study that used quintiles, quartiles, or tertiles, we saw that the greatest risk reductions were seen when simply moving from an inactive state to a more active state with the greatest health benefits being seen in this transition. The risk reduction for active individuals was approximately 30% or greater, and even greater when we took objective measures of physical fitness in excess of 50% in most cases. Recently, or relatively recently, Saltomayor and colleagues conducted a meta-analysis and they made a very important statement for today's talk. And they said that the biggest bang for the buck for coronary heart disease risk reduction occurs at the lower end of the physical activity spectrum with very modest achievable levels of physical activity. In fact, they revealed the physical activity participation at less than half of the current international recommendations was associated with a clinically relevant 14% risk reduction for heart disease. Recently, we were again commissioned to conduct an update of the evidence. So in 2017, we conducted a systematic review of current systematic reviews of the literature for a wide range of clinical conditions in adults and self-reported health status in children. And you can see the wide range of clinical conditions. What we saw here again, the systematic review revealed clear health benefits of physical activity for diverse clinical conditions. Importantly, when we looked at this, the average data across all medical conditions, we see that a very small dose of physical activity or exercise is associated with a large health benefit. Moreover, there was no threshold for benefit. This is shown here, supporting the importance of simply becoming more physically active. We've commonly been asked, what are the mechanisms that explain these multiple health benefits? So we've recently created this infographic outlining why exercise and routine physical activity is considered the magic pill by most for various clinical conditions. Example benefits include improved blood pressure control, enhanced heart and blood vessel function, improved lipid profile and glucose homeostasis, and enhanced psychological well-being and quality of life just to name a few. Over the years, we've progressively also moved away from deficit-based messaging related to physical activity and health outcomes to a more strength-based approaches. And I wanna point this quote out that's really important. Dr. Preskill is a leading authority in taking a strength-based approach. And she argued that when we look for problems, we will find more problems. And when we use a deficit-based language, we often end up feeling hopeless, powerless, and generally more exhausted. So I'm gonna talk about how our work has transitioned. And in fact, our strength-based approaches are really founded on the lessons learned from our indigenous peoples and ways of understanding and doing. The following short video is actually a production from youth, from First Nations youth at Kumshin Secondary School in Linton First Nation. This is a short video and I've provided the link for everyone. I highly recommend this emotional strength-based and hope-based, hope-filled video. So I'll just do a short little um, uh, interlude. 
This is my home, this place to be. The struggle's real, but it made me me. I was fatherless for most of my youth. But my grandpa, he showed me the truth. I almost died, now my soul's awake. I'm here for a reason to show a way. We are not alone. We'll feel the same. Let's come together, everybody sing. So that's a very powerful uh, video that talks about our strength-based approaches. And this infographic really simply outlines, this is a recent infographic that Dr. Braden and I created, and it outlines the important aspects of a truly strength-based approach to health and wellness that emphasizes doing what you enjoy, building upon your hopes, aspirations, and strengths, building upon your family and community strengths, and emphasizing the positive. And this was articulated in a recent infographic. It's a busy infographic, so I won't go through all of it today. But these strength-based approaches have seven hallmark standards that others and ourselves have identified. And we've recently created uh, this diagram to talk about these hallmark standards for effective strength-based approaches. And I would like to point out a few things in this diagram before we move on to the next slide. But a strength-based approach is a goal-oriented approach that is person-centered which allows for the establishment of future goals and aspirations. In this approach, we recognize that people need to be supported to recognize their inherent strengths and resources at their disposal. This includes looking at the environmental resources, looking, taking explicit me me methods to identify personal and environmental strengths to help to achieve their future goals. And what I really like to reinforce is that hope can actually be realized by finding strengths and through empowering relationships with others, with community and or culture. By knowing that we are experts in our own lives, we can actually support self-empowerment and self-determination, providing even greater control over our own health and well-being. And this is why we're really moving towards a much more holistic, strength-based approach. And this lends strongly with our Indigenous teachings with respect to holistic wellness. And the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute has really been a leader in this field, recognizing that we're not just talking about physical well-being. The vast majority of my early research was just focused on hard outcomes of fitness, hard outcomes of physical activity, hard outcomes of health. But what we're now seeing is the importance to recognize the significant benefits of routine physical activity and exercise on holistic wellness, which includes spiritual, emotional, mental and physical well-being. So we've actually revised how we promote. So based on all of this information, we've advocated a different approach to physical activity and exercise promotion. This infographic created by Dr. Braden outlines how physical activity is good for your heart and mind, how simply moving more and sitting less can lead to marked health benefits with small changes leading to clinically relevant benefits, and the importance of being, being active with family and friends and picking activities that you enjoy. This figure also outlines that virtually everyone can benefit from simply becoming more physically active. So in conclusion, I think it's really important to reinforce, as Dr. Silkall will do very eloquently, that there is irrefutable evidence that routine physical activity is an effective primary and secondary preventative strategy for at least 25 chronic, chronic medical conditions. And we've shown that very small changes in behavior can lead marked health benefits and particularly 
marked improvements in holistic well, wellness and well-being. And what we've seen recently is that strength-based messaging has the greatest potential for building hope and positive change for all Canadians. I'd like to thank everyone and uh, look forward to uh, questions from uh, the panel today. Darren, that was an extraordinary presentation. And I see that the questions are already pouring in, which is a good sign. Um, I want to make sure people know that we are recording this. And so if you couldn't keep up with Darren, and I sometimes <laughs> have trouble, uh, there will be an opportunity for you to review and even share uh, his uh, excellent presentation with other people. Now, one of the things that I have discovered, whether it's in the world of politics or in working on the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute, is how much joy I derive from working with people. It doesn't mean they all agree with me, and it doesn't mean that um, everything goes the way we want. But in, in uh, amazing people like Darren and the person I'm about to introduce really give energy. They don't take it. And if I started with her resume, then you might all flee because you might be intimidated. So I'm not, I'm not gonna start with Dr. Silky Creswell's resume. What I'm gonna start with is the way she strikes you as a person. She's an athlete, she's a wife, she's a mom. She is somebody who cares about her community. She's somebody who makes time for a good cause, even when she doesn't have any time left in her schedule. So I have come to appreciate her so much um, I, when she and Darren presented at our first workshop of the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute, she left a major impact on everyone as I think she's going to do this evening. Let me give you a little bit more of her formal background. She's a medical doctor and she's a neurologist, uh, a movement disorder neurologist. So she likes to talk her, about her expertise in brain health, which I think means she dumbs it down for people like me. She's an associate prof and the Mark Michael professor at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I noticed it comes back, it's a theme her, with a strong athletic background. Um, and it's no coincidence that she cares about physical activity because she lives it. Uh, her clinical and research work focuses on a holistic interdisciplinary approach for physical and emotional well being, promoting active engagement in care through exercise art. I hope you'll talk about that a little bit, mindfulness, nutrition, and community building. And I've seen the community building in so many ways. She's investigating the role of the gut microbiome with the goal to find new approaches to neurodegenerative disorders. She serves as a director of the annual National Canadian Neurology Residence Course for Movement Disorders, as president of the Canadian Movement Disorder Group, and co-founding director of the BC Brain Wellness Foundation. Well, with all of that, Soki, we can't wait to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for this very generous introduction and thank you for having me. I'll uh, share my screen uh, and I'll start the slideshow. And really, I don't have all that much to say because uh, Dan already uh, presented it all so elegantly. I, I think we're all already completely uh, um, ready to, to start moving here. So I'll give the very similar topic, the perspective of uh, neurology and brain health specifically, which is really what I'm interested in. And 
When I say brain health, I really mean this in a very holistic sense because the brain very much makes us who we are and it includes the spiritual, the social, the emotional life, of course, the physical as well. And then of course, our cognition and our mental activities. So it is very much, the brain very much determines who we are as people. Now, one of the, the main threats to who we are as people and to our brain, of course, is dementia, a very much a dreaded disease. And it's one of the neurodegenerative diseases. I particularly um, specialize in Parkinson's disease, which is another neurodegenerative disorder. And those neurodegenerative disorders are on the rise. And as we can see here, uh, with all of us getting older, those diseases that often come at older age are also going to be more prevalent. Now, there is some good news, though, and that is that about a third of the dementia risk is what we call modifiable. So those are risk factors where we actually have some at least influence over. And that includes things like um, education, so level of education, the more education you achieve, um, the lower your dementia risk will be. Um, but in addition to that, a lot of those modifiable factors are what I would call the, the, the lifestyle factors. So those uh, foundations of health really. And exercise and movement is of course a very important and, and, and um, determinant there. Uh, nutrition is another one. Yeah, sleep is really important as we have learned. So sleep um, is important to solid, uh, solidify memories, but it's also important to literally flush our brains out when we sleep. It, there's, it's like a power wash and all those uh, junk proteins that are being piling up over the course of the day are being washed out. Um, being in nature and particularly the absence of pollution is really important. So um, air pollution, for example, is certainly linked to uh, dementia and poor brain health as well. Ongoing learning and cognitive activity and uh, for sure also the creative pursuits are really important because it gives you what we call this bigger cognitive reserve. So even though a person might still develop a chronic brain disorder, they can compensate for this more easily if they have had um, more education and more ongoing cognitive activity. As we'll see, community and relationships are crucially important. Hearing plays a really important role. And it probably has to do with the, with the community relationships, with the uh, ability to interact with other people, with the ability to learn and, and hear um, input from others and being able to then process that and uh, reply. And of course, addressing risk factors. As a physician, I, I could not leave this out. So things like high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, smoking, uh, depression, high alcohol intake are, of course, really important to address as well. And uh, along with that, also stress reduction, mindfulness is one of the ways that one could achieve that. And when you look at uh, all these different factors, um, or many of you will say, well, hold on a second, they're actually all related. You know, if I do exercise during the day, I will actually sleep better at night. Uh, and um, if I'm outside exercising, I'm actually also already in nature. If I do this with somebody else, I foster relationships. Nutrition 
equally is, is closely related to things like quality of sleep, uh, for exercise, I might want to eat better. So there, there are all these different relationships and, and this is all really, uh, um, I think you, you get much more out of those different factors if you apply them together. And so I'll just highlight some here. Um, one of the Mediterranean type diets, the MIND diet, uh, has been shown, and, and, one, and there have been, of course, many more studies, but this is just a highlight, uh, have been shown to actually cut the incidence of Alzheimer's disease by half in this uh, um, study in Chicago with 960 participants. And if you eat well, the people who eat in the top uh, third well, then um, they their brain is seven and a half years younger than the ones who eat less well. We've done research into that as well and found similar things for Parkinson's disease, where the people who were in the top third of eating well, of adhering to Mediterranean type diets, they actually get their Parkinson's disease much later than the ones who did not adhere to the diet or who ate poorly. So the difference for men was eight years and for women it was 17 years. That is really remarkable given that we do not have any medications that can prevent Parkinson's or Alzheimer's uh, or that can slow disease progression down. So if nutrition um, might have, and this is a correlational study, but if nutrition might have um, a big impact, then this is certainly uh, something very worth pursuing. Likewise, social integration and community are, are absolutely crucial for happiness, but also for longevity. And we've seen what happens when this, this fabric, this societal fabric and the, these communities uh, um, fall apart during the pandemic. And we get, of course, a lot of mental health problems. And if you look just at the, the bleak number of survival, uh, loneliness is as dangerous as smoking or alcoholism. So with that, um, we, are, we founded a, um, the BC Brain Wellness Program that was also with uh, Dr. Jack Taunton, uh, and uh, we do exactly that. So we, we integrate those things. We integrate the uh, creative uh, pursuits, the music uh, with the exercise, and uh, all of that builds community, and uh, um, we're thinking this is working really well and has been quite a lifeline during the pandemic. If you look at guidelines for Canada, um, particularly in this case, the Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines for kids, uh, though, as John already mentioned, it looks rather bleak. So the guidelines are very much, um, they, are, they were developed on an enormous um, uh, amount of evidence, and the recommendation was to have at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity, physical activity per day for, for kids, uh, um, to have several hours of structured and unstructured light physical activities, um, to get a good night's sleep, so about nine to 11 hours uh, for the five to 13 year olds, and then a little bit less for the 14 to 17 year olds, yeah, and uh, then to reduce uh, sedentary behavior, and particularly screen time too, as John already mentioned, up to two hours per day. But if you look at the, what, what actually happens in the population, it's pretty bleak. And uh, as a parent, of course, of uh, two teenage children, uh, um, this is something that makes me very concerned. Uh, um, just under 10% actually meet those guidelines that I just showed you. 
and you can read through this and you can also look at that online. But we are far behind where we need to be for the health of our whole nation. And that starts in childhood, but it's certainly also true for adulthood. Uh, this is true for, for physical activity, but this is also true for those related concepts of sleep, of, uh, for nutrition, for chronic stress, and then for the combination of those factors. So we have a lot of catching up to do. And in conclusion, um, what I think we all really need to be very aware of, and we often are not because we're talking uh, frequently about long time spans, you know, the, these are several years, these are lifetimes. So these are time spans beyond the usual uh, range of a political appointment. Um, chronic diseases, including of course, chronic brain diseases come at an enormous cost to individuals, their families and societies. And the disease prevention actually, although you have to make an upfront investment is much cheaper than the treatment. And so I think complementary to a world-class medical system, we really need to take prevention seriously and make healthy living one of the foundations of our society and of course of our healthcare system. But as John already mentioned, it is not just healthcare um, that will be positively affected uh, by making this a priority. And the topic of uh, today's meeting, of course, is exercise and movement. And along with that, these other concepts that are related, healthy nutrition, being in nature, having a clean environment, are of course also all key components of this Healthy Living Foundation. And with that, I hand it over to John. Well, um, think about that, friends. I mean, we heard some fairly, the word bleak was used, bleak and negative kinds of comments, but delivered in such a positive manner. So that gives me hope. Because we hope that we've got such incisive thinkers to help us do better. Now, I'm going to surprise you, Darren and Sophie. We've got several questions here. I'm going to try and combine them. Uh, I'm going to surprise you by subjecting you to the rule that is imposed on people in the House of Commons, which means you have 60 seconds to answer a question. And in the House of Commons, the mic gets turned off if you exceed the limit. I won't turn off your mic, but you get the picture. I want to get through several questions with each of you. And uh, first one, we, um, Soki, you said that we're far behind where we need to be as a nation. And um, even though, Darren, you were saying we shouldn't be thinking about deficits, we should be thinking about strengths, um, I'd ask you to respond to this. Um, governments tend to act in their political mandates. That means they tend to operate in short-term spasmodic and fragmented decision-making chapters. So I'd ask each of you, and um, Silky, we'll start with you, um, how do we influence governments to do better, given that the length of their mandate is much shorter than the time frame in which we tend to operate or need to operate? Yes, so I'm not a politician, I'm a scientist and physician. So of course, my first instinct is to say, okay, we present the data. Uh, and uh, Darren, I think did a very convincing job of, of showing that us that the data is really there. And for other areas, we need to work on the data. So nutrition, for example, we've got good data, but we need more. I think what it comes down to is a culture change. 
similar to the attitude towards smoking, towards using seatbelts, et cetera. And the more this is known in the population, the more there will be a request for making this a priority. And I think then hopefully um, government will also uh, respond to that. I mean, ideally, of course, it needs to come from both sides, from the top down and from the bottom up. I hope those were my 60 seconds not done yet. That's good. No, and uh, Darren, we're going to come to you with the same question. I have to say my experience as a parliamentarian was that I found there were always more pressing and urgent things of the day. So when I created you know, National Health and Fitness Day and the Parliamentary Fitness Initiative, I got some good pickup from people on Parliament Hill, but not the kind of support from the prime minister's office and from the government as a whole. And I would say that was the government that I was part of. Um, similarly, we now have a government that doesn't even have a sport minister. So uh, I, I think there's a huge amount of political premium for the government that gets this right. Darren, um, any thoughts about this? Yeah, I think for, uh, for our perspective, we know there is a crisis with respect to physical activity. And I think the way we phrase it if we focus in on the innate strengths and resources and what has worked in the past with individuals, there's overwhelming evidence coming out that that's the best way ahead. Because if we create these targets that aren't achievable for individuals, most will just stop doing it. So if we actually provide incremental changes, you'll actually see health behavior change. And I really like what Dr. Cresswell was talking about, because it is an integrated healthy lifestyle behavior approach. So it's, it's a whole, the whole gamut, whether it's stress reduction, alcohol moderation, smoking cessation, healthy nutrition, physical activity, sleep, they all are interwoven. And that's again, look at what worked, what has worked in the past and work towards your aspirations. And I think that's something that will resonate with most, with all actually, rather than just creating silos of, okay, let's do this. But we know that most of our society is not doing that already. So we've got to change. We've got to rethink the way we've previously done health promotion. And what gives me some optimism is I see, you know, through Canadian Health and Fitness Institute and other agencies, a coming together of people who are converging. And I'm hoping there, that we'll get to a stage where government has no choice but to operate alongside to promote these things. So in the same vein, and this time we'll start with you, Darren, um, we never want to reinvent a wheel. We want to be elegant and streamlined in how we use resources. So are there any other countries we can look to for good role models in promoting physical activity that ultimately redounds to the physical, mental, and spiritual health of its citizens. Yeah, I think globally there's enormous work being done um, internationally, and I think that they're all working together in a nice unison. I think if I look at Australia, what's being done in the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, building upon, again, this strength-based approach. I think we're moving away a little bit from the threshold recommendations to more messaging, like just came out with World Health Organization, Every Move Counts. That was created really in Canada years ago and in, in the United Kingdom and in Germany. And so those countries are really doing a good job. And, uh, and it's, again, supporting individuals within their family unit, within their community unit. So the entire community is is... Of benefit is healthier. It's not just the individual. And so that really, uh, those approaches, you're seeing them across the world. There's a lot of harmonization with respect to initiatives. And those initiatives that build from the community outward, right, or inward, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, is, are very powerful. 
So, Silky, Darren pointed us to some sort of multilateral efforts. Do you have in mind any specific countries where there are good practices or programs that we can draw upon? So, I, I mean, of course, I second what, what Darren already said, and I think it's actually really healthy that we have those multinational um, initiatives and to, to that the WHO is involved in, and so on. I think for some of that, it might actually be useful to look at societies where this has been part of society, of the fabric of society forever and ever. Uh, where let's say the Mediterranean diet isn't just a diet to follow that you do for 10 weeks and then you, you go back to your old ways, but it's a way to uh, um, eat together, to have community, to obviously eat healthily, uh, um, to move throughout the day. Uh, and there are certain um, areas around the world called the blue zones where people are particularly long living and where the what they have in common often is exactly that is the community their healthy food uh, and um, actually not excessive exercise but a um, good level of natural physical activity throughout the day as part of what people just do in everyday life very and then I think we can take, you know, some examples from different countries, you know, let's say several European countries, like the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, they have a great bike uh, system and uh, others have really good uh, nutrition. So I think it might actually be worth going around the world and having a look at what works in those different places and see how we can adjust that to Canada. So I think you're setting a great travel agenda for our participants tonight. And where we go when we can go someplace, it's to those blue zone countries. <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting. Now, I noticed something. I don't know if our other um, participants uh, caught this, but you both referred to spiritual health in your uh, presentations as, as part of an um, uh, aspect of overall health. I'm a person of faith who is proud to live in a country where uh, we have freedom of, of religion. We can pursue whatever God we want to, and we tend not to like our politicians to impose their faith upon us. I think that's a pretty broad spoken perspective. Uh, and yet we need to leave space for spiritual health. And so I, I wonder if you could each address that. Um, what does that mean and how does it fit with the physical and mental health part? Um, uh, We'll, we'll let you go first, Silky, on this one. Yeah, so I think the, the spiritual component, um, I personally think is very important, but there's also research to show that. And I think it goes beyond even faith. I think, it, broadly speaking, for me, that would be the um, acknowledgement or the knowledge that I, an individual is part of something that is much bigger than the individual. Uh, and maybe also to have a particular purpose. And both those things, so, uh, being part of something much bigger than oneself and the sense of purpose in life are actually linked to, to um, good mental health. Um, there are factors that are important for happiness, for example. Uh, and that again, then good mental health, of course, these are all things that, that move in circles are also going to be motivating to actually um, 
you know, make it worthwhile and look after others, um, look after people in your community, um, making sure that you're treading lightly on the earth and that you're eating well and you know, looking after yourself as well, etc. So I think that spiritual component is uh, important in there. Very interesting. And, and, you know, as we think about that, we tend to not leave space for this. I mean, our lives are so crammed in our digital era that even if you were wanting to pursue a spiritual dimension, it tends to get crowded out. Darren, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, I think Silky's just hit it perfectly. And, and the one thing I talk to for people that may not be um, uh, faith-based, the spirit within is a lot of discussions we have within indigenous peoples is spirit within and that's connection to land connection to to water and and all all these things and there as silky's nicely talked about there's a lot of evidence that's coming out peer-reviewed evidence supporting spirituality whether it's faith-based or spirit within uh research that's really uh compelling to show the health benefits and these are objective outcomes too they're not just subjective outcomes so there's a lot of research that's showing uh, with respect to mental well-being, physical well-being, these determinants. So uh, I think that anyone that's doing research in this field or in health promotion needs to talk about wellness. And that needs to include spiritual, emotional wellness, as well as mental well-being and physical well-being, which are the two traditionally um, measured metrics. Interesting. Well, and, and I'm going to uh, dovetail with that those comments. Um, the question uh, relating to our being isolated. And that was an astounding thing you said, Silky, that social integration uh, and community engagement are crucial for happiness. Loneliness is as dangerous as smoking or alcohol. So here we live in a pandemic where we're told to stay at home. Uh, I think that was almost a call to us to look out for our lonely friends and neighbors, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you wanna speak to that. Uh, that was very specific to this uh, era in which we live, but uh, is, do you have any specifics that you think we should be doing to help others? Because I'm guessing that people who show up for a webinar like this aren't the ones who are lonely, it's often the case. Any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the. Um, the quote came from the Harvard um, Adult Development Study, which has been going on for over 80 years. Uh, and so, again, this is hard data. Uh, um, but you're absolutely right. This is obviously entirely uh, pertinent to our current situation. And you're also right that the people who are lonely are the ones that we do not know about. Uh, and uh, so it will take some active reaching out to our neighbors to... Uh, our friends whom we've met, not have spoken um, to recently, to people maybe living in care homes, um, to family, and to, to be fairly creative with that because it will be um, somewhat technologically based. Uh, with the Brain Wellness Program, we have a program um, where we call people actively uh, with volunteers who do not have access to internet, but of course, you also need to make sure that people across the, the country have actually broadband internet. Uh, that's going to be, this is more important now than, than ever. We've, um, 
will will have to be nimble in that way and make use of technology as well as of the the human connection. Well, thank you, and I, I want you both to know that um, one of the points, uh, which I think is probably speaks on behalf of everybody, from Michael Souster was, look, how do we get information uh, from you, you and your great presentations to a larger Canadian audience? Uh, I echo that. Uh, I'm going to say that we will put this presentation on YouTube, and then everyone who's on the call today will receive a notice of where that is. Um, and uh, I, I mean. <laughs> Uh, both Silky and Darren work in so many different forums. I, I refer again to the Canadian Health and Fitness Institute. They're both uh, critical in our success. So you might want to look at that website as well. Um, one question just came in uh, from my friend Noah Bloom, who I know uh, from the Harvard Canadian Club. Um, he asks a very interesting and you might say basic question. Uh, how can we support more walking? It's such an underestimated wellness activity. Uh, Darren, we'll start with you on that. Yeah, the walking is it's the one exercise. And if you look at every metric, every survey, the preferred leisure time activity, except for probably youth in, in adults for certain is, is walking. And I think the, the benefits of walking are so clearly established, right? Just minor volumes of walking have been shown to reduce risk uh, and more importantly, improve all those determinants of wellness. So I think Walking is the, the number one thing that we prescribe in our daily practice. Even our athletes that are injured. So we have some athletes, Olympic athletes, professional athletes that get injured. They're prescribed first and foremost walking because of the, again, the spiritual, emotional, mental well-being aspects of that while they're recovering. Interesting. And um, it, it's cheap. <laughs> so, so, so what about the mental health aspects of walking? I, I remember being in a group of psychiatrists who had convened in the dining hall in the primate buildings, and um, they were talking about trends of uh, psych in psychiatry and mental illness. And I just, I asked, uh, what about exercise is medicine, you know, and, and it was almost like uh, no one had thought of that before. There was just sudden energy <laughs> in the room. Uh, I, I think that uh, this is weighing into your your passion, but what about walking and what do you have to say about that? Absolutely. So Darren just uh, said it already and there is a lot of evidence uh, for its benefits. I certainly see that as a, as a clinician in the clinic all the time for um, our people. Uh, and um, it's good for the physical, the mental health. Um, it also um, helps with community building. It's something you can do even in the, fortunately we can do in the pandemic. Um, having walkable neighborhoods, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. And in mental health, exercise, including walking, is becoming more and more, really increasingly, um, a mainstay as well. So they, that medicine is changing that way as well. But of course, what we haven't, what we still need to work on is the, the infrastructure, the uh, our support that people might need to do this uh, safely to start with, etc. So I think it it needs an investment as well. But in the meantime, we everybody who can should go out walking, and I'll certainly do that with our dog, who will insist on uh, his evening walk after our our talk here. <laughs> All right, but the dog's getting impatient, and we're going to wrap up soon. I've got one more question from our audience. This is very specific, so you'll be forgiven, Silky, if you 
don't have an answer, but this is from my friend Gordon Catherwood from the Sunshine Coast. And he asks, have you heard of sciatic nerve flossing? Um, he suffered from a debilitating sciatica and is now free of sciatic pain due to sciatic nerve flossing exercises. He says the medical professions that professionals he consulted with had not heard of it. Have you heard of, um, of sciatic nerve flossing? So it's not something I've heard of it. And it's more, a, I think, in the physical therapy realm. I would not say that I'm an expert in that particular area. And as a scientist, I couldn't say that I can speak to any studies uh, to that. But if it has helped you, I think that's great. That is excellent. If we don't have studies in this area yet, then we need to do them, obviously. Uh, um, and from what I know, but this is again not my area of expertise, uh, I think it comes down to indeed doing a specific set of exercises. Uh, and um, that and exercises generally are also, again, a mainstay of back pain treatment and, and uh, any problems with nerve roots and, and so on. So it could absolutely make sense. And um, it's better now, so that's great. And you know, we can rely on our experts when they're brave enough to say they don't know everything. So uh, thank you, Silky, for that answer. Um, listen, uh, I really thank you, Darren, and you, Silky, for being with us tonight. I hope that everybody on the call this evening gets a sense of the, the energy and optimism I feel about bringing together great people like them to make us uh, a group of people who are passionate about our community, engaged, and desiring to make it better. So I'm going to say thank you. And then I'm going to turn it back to Stephanie, who's got some specifics about our upcoming webinars and where we go from here. Stephanie. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a wonderful evening to everybody who who tuned in and joined us and to our wonderful panel. I think uh, I, I really hope that you enjoyed this evening that we put together and the speakers and the, the real talent in the room and the informative discussion. And not only was tonight fantastic, we have five more coming. So please register, tune in and join us once again. Next time we're joined um, on talking about bolstering our national security on March 11th. So please tune in. You can find all the details at johnweston4mp.ca. You've seen the, our website at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. So please make sure to check out our website. And not only can you find information about our upcoming webinars, Things That Matter, you can also find more information on getting involved in John's campaign, whether that's donating, whether that's registering to support him, you know, we'd really appreciate any and all involvement, even with just tuning in tonight. So I hope that you can check out our website, get a little time to know John if you don't already, and get involved in our campaign. We'd love to have you on, on the journey with us as we try and get John elected once again to the House of Commons. So thank you very much for tuning in tonight, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everybody. Thank you.